0: Hello and welcome to the first college football experience podcast. Uh, I'm David Capel here with Kent Brown. Kent, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. I'm looking forward to it. We're less than a month away from the season and as you and I both know, when the college football season starts, it's pretty much one of the best opening weekends. And then not to mention, we're going to see some big games right off the bat that will shape the whole rest of the season. Florida State, Oklahoma State, obviously you have lsu against wisconsin those are teams that if you trip up in august you're pretty much out of the hunt for sure we're going
0: to be talking uh, a lot about that the the 10 biggest games and how uh really front-loaded the schedule is going to be this year we're going to be talking a little bit about uh some of the new coaching hires and coaches on the hot seat and uh finally we're going to be talking about this new behemoth that is the playoff in the uh in the uh new championship structure so uh first let's start off uh Tell me, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. I went to the University of Miami.
1: I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Very much a football-oriented type of family. I'm a Hurricanes fan, but I was a diehard Notre Dame fan pretty much from birth. So... My allegiance lies with the Notre Dame Fighting Irish and the Miami Hurricanes. But if they happen to play, I'm certainly a Notre Dame fan first and foremost. And, you know, football's just clearly a big part of my life. And it's something that since I've basically been old enough to remember watching anything, I've always enjoyed watching football as much as anything. But in terms of my fanhood, you'll hear a lot about the Notre Dame Fighting Irish on here. And then a little bit about the Miami Hurricanes as well. But those are definitely the teams I cheer for more frequently than anyone else. And I hate
0: Penn State, and I don't
1: particularly like Florida State either.
0: And what about Pitt? You grew up in Pittsburgh. How do you feel about Pitt? Pitt's cool. Yeah,
1: I mean, I don't necessarily... I'm not a diehard fan, but I hope they do as well as they can, as long as they're not playing... Miami or Notre Dame, which they actually do play them pretty frequently. <laughs> they play Miami now
0: every year because they're in the same division. And they'll be playing Notre Dame uh, semi-regularly with this new ACC five-game schedule that Notre Dame's going to. So you really couldn't have coexisted in the uh, in the late 80s then, huh, when it was uh, convicts and Catholics. Uh, but hey, here you are. Here we are today. Um, my name's David Capel. I'm uh uh, college football enthusiast. I uh, work in sports as well, but unfortunately, I don't have anything to do with the pigskin at work. I'm an SC fan uh, from the northeast originally. Um, I have family that went to BC, so I've got a soft spot in my heart for maroon and gold teams. And we're out here, and uh, really more than anything, is I love to tailgate. The football games are fun, but uh, sometimes I have a hard time uh, seeing them through my uh, beer goggles uh, at the end of the afternoon. So. Um, yeah, that's a little bit about me, that's a little bit about Kent, so as you'll uh, probably notice, we got a Notre Dame guy at one end of the table, an SC guy at this end of the table, but uh, we, still, uh, we still make it work.
1: And at the end of the season, let's just say Notre Dame comes here to Los Angeles to play USC, so maybe we'll put on a college football experience podcast in late November, and we can uh, have maybe some sort of build up and do a good tailgate there for the end of the season. And hopefully for both Notre Dame and USC, it matters. This is a big season for both programs, USC with a new coach, and Notre Dame kind of coming off a pretty mediocre season after going to the national championship game two years ago. So I feel like this year is a real building block for both of those programs. And even though I don't like USC, I I do respect that program quite a bit. They're one of the best programs of all time. I would say that you know if you just want to talk about just – a, a traditional program, the way they do things. Pat Hayden now is the athletic director. USC is the type of team that should be better than what they've been the last few years, and I feel like with Lane Kiffin gone,
0: they now have a chance. Uh, thank God. And, and and actually, growing up in the Northeast, uh, the only football I had on TV was Notre Dame on uh, Saturday mornings on, on NBC. So I, uh, I got a little history with that team as well, but uh, I completely despise them. So, anyways. Everyone does. <laughs> Uh, Moving on, so uh, I'm sure the listeners are already tired of USC, Notre Dame, because anyone outside of USC or Notre Dame fandom is is pretty sick of that storyline as well, but we're going to move into a couple of the storylines that we're already sick of hearing, it's the first week in August, camp has been in for a week, and there's stuff that every year we're just tired of hearing, starting with... Suspensions, And I don't want to bring up Georgia specifically, but Georgia specifically and really a lot of those big SEC teams just uh, cut and bait at the beginning of the season.
1: Yeah, suspensions is one of those things where you hope as a fan or you just hope as a coach or a player or anything that you limit those in the offseason. And then, of course, if they are going to be suspended players, when you get that sort of tweet... Or the Facebook message, or whatever it is, you don't want to look at it. You hope it's not a star. You hope it's a backup. You hope it's some freshman that wasn't going to see much playing time. You don't want it to be the star quarterback. You know, for USC, you don't want Nelson Aguilar to be your suspended player. You want it to be your freshman third string defensive tackle that you go, "Ah, eh, he can miss six games,
0: nobody really cares." Well, really, so, that's how it feels. In the SEC, it's always the guy, you know, there if it's the if it's the starting quarterback that gets in a fight, he's going to miss that first game against Savannah State. But it's the uh, it's always the third string uh, defensive tackle that gets suspended for the year for uh, you know, for those infractions. But uh, at Texas right now, it looks like uh, Charlie Strong's not messing around. He's suspending starters, backups, walk-ons. Uh, what are your thoughts about uh, Charlie Strong in Texas?
1: I like Charlie Strong a lot. I've been a fan of his pretty much since he was working with Lou Holtz in South Carolina. You know, He got that job kind of after sort of building up credibility with Lou Holtz and Bob Davy and those guys. And I think he's going to do a really good job. I think Charlie Strong, first of all, Texas has talent. They don't have
0: the talent they had in 2005. Right, nobody was drafted this year, so there's definitely a little bit of a talent deficiency.
1: Yeah, but they still have I mean, you look at their running backs alone. Malcolm Brown, big-time recruit, has potential. Jonathan Gray, one of the biggest running back recruits in the country a couple years ago, has a lot of ability. And then you throw in that defense, there's still a lot of players that are high-quality athletes. And then you also bring up the fact that how many times have Texas really been down in the last 20 years? They have a year where they might win six. They might
0: win seven. Yeah, for sure. But,
1: like, even last year, Texas was not a bad team. Like, they beat Oklahoma soundly.
0: I think they, what, reeled off six wins in a row in the middle of the season? Yeah. They had a Yeah. They had a good little run. Got into the top 25.
1: Had they beaten Baylor to close the regular season, they would have went and yeah. represented the Big 12 as the champion in the festival. They were not that far off. And so even though Mack Brown stepped away, this is a team, again, I don't want to just harp on this one game. Because we've seen teams beat better teams. But Oklahoma is preseason top five this year. Yeah. Texas beat them last year soundly. Yeah, and they're playing in the same location. Exactly. So I feel like this is not the type of team that you should overlook them. And then they have some challenges. In the first month, we're going to kind of know what they're made of. They play BYU. They play UCLA, and then they get into the Big 12 schedule afterwards. Texas, there's not really any time where they can ease into 4-0 and where they're beating nobody. They're going to be right off the bat. We're going to know a lot about the Texas
0: Longhorns pretty soon. What do you think about their suspensions? Do you think that this is going to hurt them uh, right away, or do you think that this is uh, part of that shaping of the team and really uh, getting that new feel of Texas football under Charlie Strong?
1: Yeah, I think it's more shaping the team. Uh, Bergeron hurts a little bit because he's one of their – top offensive players. But I think Charlie Strong is making his message pretty much known where he's going to say, hey, guys, this is the way it is. I'm not going to play favorites. I'm not going to be your friend, I'm going to be the type of guy that's almost like a like a disciplinarian a guy that's going to go in and if you're not going to be part of the system I'm building then we'll move on and we'll put 85 scholarship players that want to be here and follow the way I want it to be and it seems like that maybe was the biggest detriment to Texas the last couple of years was they kind of had that sort of Country club mentality type of deal where Mac Brown was almost looked at more as like ah, he's just kind of you know the old man that's around, but nobody really respected him as much. I think with Charlie Strong, first of all, imposing wise. I mean, Charlie Strong looks like you know he can take care of business on his own regardless. And uh, on top of it, I feel like he's he's a no nonsense guy and. He's going to put them in a in a good position. I'm not saying they're going to win 11 games this year, but I feel pretty confidently that they're going to win 9 and I think that would be a good year and a good stepping stone. Maybe you go 9 wins, you play in a solid bowl game, you get that 10th win and at that point, you know, you're kind of back to where you need to be. And the other thing too that's hurt Texas the last couple of years, David, is the emergence of Texas A&M. For sure. Johnny Manziel, but Manziel's gone. We'll see what Texas A&M does. What if A&M wins 6 this year and Texas wins 10? all of a sudden, all that stuff that Texas A&M were building for two years probably goes away, and Texas becomes the you know hot program in the state again,
0: which well, is us not forget Let's not forget Baylor as well. Baylor's also been on the come-up the last <laughs> couple of years, and TCU. And, you know, speaking of suspensions, TCU uh, has to deal with Devontae Fields. Um, he's officially left. He's officially gone. He went to There's an S C F Stephen F. Austin, yeah. So he's going to SF Austin to play. So that, that hurts them right away. But, uh, yeah, it's... It's interesting. We'll see what, what Texas kind of, how it how it ends up at the end of the season. And I don't mean just the school. I mean the uh, the state in which team kind of comes out on top. And you have Texas Tech with with Kingsbury now. Yeah, best in uh, coaching football.
1: <laughs> and, yeah, they're a hot commodity in terms of the one thing you know about his type of offense and if you know anything about Texas Tech in the past was they can put up some serious points. And so I think he's selling that whole, if you want to come here and you want to score 45 to 50 points a game – look who I've worked with. I worked with Mike Leach who put up those points. I worked with Texas A&M with Johnny Manziel, we put up those points. I worked in Houston where we put up those points with Case Keenum. So I think Kingsbury can kind of sell that to a lot of recruits. And he's not going to, Texas Tech's never going to compete with Texas or Texas A&M in terms of all the higher quality recruits. You know, their 20th best recruit is not going to be close to what A&M and Texas's is based on
0: talent. But they can get a couple big time guys and Yeah, and also, you know, if you have a guy that fits that system that's not a, a, you know, big recruit, if he can uh, really buy into that system and has what the coaches are looking for, you can really uh, do some damage, and I think we've seen that uh, with a lot of those running gun programs. Of course. Uh, okay, so suspensions uh, suck, but we deal with them every year. Uh, this is kind of a new story that I'm sick of hearing of already, and it's this uh, whole story of autonomy. It's been wall to wall this week. Uh, the vote was yesterday uh, on Thursday, um, and the Big Five conferences are going to be getting a lot more autonomy uh, in the NCAA. Uh, two reasons I'm kind of sick of the story. First of all, it's it's boring. Um, it's tough to kind of understand. Um, we, we get that they're not splitting off but now they get to make some of their own rules um, it seems a little bit unfair but it also seems necessary and then second of all like it doesn't have anything to do with what's on the field you know uh, so kind of talk me through talk me through autonomy and why uh, why it's not as boring of a story as I, as I, as I feel like it is well, I think the main reason it's not boring it's, it
1: does sound boring and if you really want to break it down you're right when you watch a game you're not thinking about it but I think we're getting to the point now with the Big Five conferences and then, you know, you throw Notre Dame as well with their kind of a quasi-ACC type of team. Eventually, you have to think they're going to split off and they're going to sort of represent their own group. And that's going to be, you know, you have, what, 12 teams in the Pac-12, 14 in the SEC in the Big Ten, currently 10 teams in the Big 12, and then the ACC now has 14 14 as well. So they can split that off and you get sort of a group of, roughly about 70 teams that are all competing for a national championship at the highest level, and then what I hope happens is, I would love to see them all split off and start sort of that group where you have your big five conferences, Notre Dame would I guess officially have to be an ACC team at that yeah. point, I don't think they could really go any other way but imagine the out-of-conference games Yeah, you would have, some really, something. You'd yeah. have some really cool out-of-conference games where there would no longer be the SEC teams in the you know in November playing uh, you know a week where Alabama's playing uh, a directional school from Tennessee and yeah. Florida's playing a directional school from South Carolina and uh, now Florida if they want to have their quote unquote easy week they're still gonna have to play a team like Indiana Purdue, they're gonna yeah. have to play yeah. a team like Purdue they're gonna have to go and maybe play a team from the ACC that's down and also when you schedule these games Two, it's usually years, years in that. advance yeah. you don't know like who would have thought you know a decade, Ago that Colorado would be in the position they've been lately. They were not that far off of being in a national championship no. game in 2002. And all of a sudden, now Colorado is the type of team you'd love to have them on your yeah, schedule. And also ran. So that's where it'd be kind of cool is to see these teams like, you know, West Virginia right now is down, but three, four years ago, West Virginia was beating Clemson in the Orange Bowl yeah, just two seasons ago. On them. So th- that's where I think the autonomy thing's interesting and in the-, the fact that these teams. Are starting to realize, you know, we make the money for this organization. Like the NCAA, I know it's nonprofit and everything, but Eastern Michigan's not bringing in a lot of money. Right. But you have schools, even the lesser big time schools, like let's throw a Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt's still doing pretty well, and Kentucky. Obviously, basketball, they're bigger, but even for football, Kentucky still brings a lot of fans that's into their true. games, and it's still a huge market. And so I think these teams sort of realize like that's where we need to focus more on the big guns and eliminate
0: some of these lesser teams that really aren't helping us out. But you just brought up basketball, which makes it tough because you can't have that 70-person tournament when you need the March Madness, the 300 teams getting in, people getting in from the Southern Conference, and all that type of stuff. And it
1: would just be football. I don't think this would be something that transitions to every sport. I feel like it would be a football-oriented decision. Where I mean, just look for the longest time. Every other sport in the NCAA has a playoff, and it wasn't until this year that college football had a playoff. So yeah. they've always been different,
0: anyways. Yeah, and I mean, we've seen we've seen football dictate you know basketball before with kind of the dissolution of the Big East, uh, which you know it's tough to see sometimes. But I think you know you go where the money goes, and I, and that's really what the at where the heart of the story is. Is is it all comes down to money? But. uh You know, it's something that we're going to be hearing about for the rest of the season, and we're going to be seeing how it goes, you know, over the next year. And I think they don't start making, being able to make their own rules till January 1st, but they have to submit the rules that they're going to be voting on by October. So this story is going to be uh, bleeding into the season, unfortunately, a little bit. But it will be interesting to see kind of um, how this affects recruiting, how this. how this affects these smaller schools so they don't become feeder schools into these uh, into the Power 5. But, right. but we'll see. So, uh, yeah. Now, uh, moving on from stories that we hate into basically our favorite thing on the planet, uh, which is betting. Um, we've been looking over some lines for this year. Uh, we're not getting into game lines yet, although I did see um, South Carolina is minus 11 in their first game against A&M. I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying right now. But we're not going to talk about uh, game lines yet. We're going to talk a little bit about some future bets, some season lines, and uh, some stuff that really kind of piques our interest, and that we'll probably, be, uh, you know, heading to Vegas to put on to put money on it, since uh, it's illegal to bet in California and probably whatever state you're listening to this in. So
1: yeah, unless you live in Nevada, you pretty much have to uh, yeah, make the a system. trip. <laughs> yeah.
0: Make 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 a trip, as I say that in quotes. Uh, and I guess Delaware, but I think Delaware struck down that. Actual sports betting, unless they're parlays. They and New Jersey was trying
1: it as well. More states are trying it, but it's uh, it's a tough thing to try to pull off. I guess a lot of a lot of people aren't too happy about it. Yeah.
0: Well. Okay. So so let's start it out with uh, let's start out with the Big Ten. This conference where it's not about how good your team is; it's about how easy your schedule is. That's the that's the overriding storyline of the Big Ten this year. Is Iowa schedule is a piece of cake. Wisconsin schedule is a piece of cake. Ohio State's playing a one game season against Michigan State. You know, I mean they have the Michigan game, but that's basically how everyone's looking at this. Indiana, who basically, you know, is always kind of an also-ran has a couple game schedule really when it comes down to it for their in terms of their over/under and in terms of making a bowl game. So, it's a really a, a, a conversation about schedules in the Big 10, but let's start with a couple of those teams that have these notoriously easy schedules. Let's start with uh, Iowa. Iowa's got uh, an over/under set at eight and a half. Um, the over's at minus one hundred and fifteen. I think the under's is at like, one hundred and twenty-five. I don't remember the. Sounds about right. Yeah, it's somewhere in there. So they got uh, They're they're pretty close either way on a on an eight and a half win season. And I think uh, anyone who follows college football will hear. They should go ten and zero. They should go nine and one in their first ten games. Yeah, and and uh, but they
1: forget they're coached by Kirk, Fer- Kirk Ferentz, and then on top of it, Greg Davis as the offensive coordinator. That's always a little bit shaky.
0: And they haven't won over eight games since two thousand nine, when they won eleven games. Uh, they've gone eight and five, four and eight, blah blah blah. That back and forth the last four years. So,
1: but here's their conference schedule. Okay, I'm going to go through. If you really want to talk about the Big Ten, and we've actually. Just talked about you and I, in and of ourselves, the fact that how challenging the Pac-12 schedules are. There's no team in the Pac-12 that doesn't have a tough conference schedule. For sure. But the Big Ten. Listen to Iowa's conference schedule. At Purdue. Win. Indiana.
0: Win. At Maryland. Should be a win. Northwestern at home. Yeah, that's a tough one, but it's at home. They should win. At Minnesota. Should win. Jerry Kill's a great coach, but... At Illinois. (laughs) Yeah, you count it. You name the score on that one. Wisconsin at home and then Nebraska at home. Those both are tough. Right, so, but they're going in 10 games before that, Wisconsin-Nebraska. That's game 11 and 12. So of those first 10 games, all they should win all their conference, and then their out-of-conference out is? Out-of-conference, Northern Iowa. Okay.
1: Ball State. Yeah. Iowa State, which is Okay. And It'd then at Pitt, game. which I think Pitt will be improved, but again, not your. If that's your toughest out of conference, you, yeah. you'll take that. I mean, you take a loss there, and maybe a loss at Northwestern. But you notice, and you're still looking at eight and two. But I brought up this is the Big Ten. You know which teams I didn't mention? Ohio State, exactly. Michigan State, Michigan State, Michigan. Penn
0: State, Michigan. Yeah, they get They don't play easy. any of them. Well, and, that, and that's why everyone argues for a nine game schedule because on a nine game conference schedule, you have to get at least one of those four. You don't get to just. Pick the two also rounds from the other side of the conference, um, which they do, and I think Wisconsin pretty much does the same thing. What's their schedule look like? Yeah, here's Wisconsin's conference schedule
1: because they don't play Penn State, Ohio State, Michigan State, or Michigan either. Exactly. They go at Northwestern. Okay. Illinois at home. Yep. Maryland at home. By the way, both those teams their homecomings Iowa's as Indiana that's
0: smart and then Wisconsin's as <laughs> Maryland also smart Yeah you got to give your fans something to chew so, about So
1: after the really tough game against Maryland on homecoming for Wisconsin <laughs> they go at Rutgers and at Purdue Oh gosh I mean you talk about set, you can't set the line high enough for You're talking games.
0: about a three game
1: stretch that's about as easy as it gets for a big time conference team and then they close out Nebraska
0: at home at Iowa and then Minnesota at home Okay, so I mean, two are, two of those last three games are going to be pretty tough. But you look at it like this: they both Iowa and Wisconsin both have the talent to run through that schedule until obviously they run into each other. They both have to play Nebraska. Um, but the problem is, if you look at their if you look at their results the last few years, is that they always have that one trip up. They always have that one game that they should have won that they just they can't put away. Especially in Iowa's case, where they have two or three of those games yes. a year. Wisconsin, I can actually see they have a. Over/under set at nine and a half uh, at minus one forty. So you're paying a little bit to take that, but I think that they basically, I think they go in and they're they're at ten wins going into Minnesota at the end of the season, really. Um, and so that Minnesota game is, is just going to be well, the, cherry the one on thing top. that hurts. If you can guarantee Wisconsin, we'll talk more about Week One specifically here
1: uh, as our shows get closer to the actual kickoff, which is in late August. But Wisconsin opens up with LSU. That's if right. they get that win. They're going to win ten. Exactly.
0: If they lose yeah. that, all of a sudden now then they, they kind of have to, have to run the gamut. Yeah. So and and you know they're like I said we're not talking week one lines, but I think they're four point underdogs at a neutral field in in Dallas, Houston, Houston, Reliant. Yeah. So I think that that's going to be a I think that's going to be a really marquee week one game, and, and that really sets the tone for Wisconsin. They win that game, you can basically cash that bet week too, but we'll see. So that's something that we really like is Wisconsin. Uh, over nine and a half at minus one forty. Iowa, like we said, on paper they should be nine and one going into their final two games, uh, and you know so that makes eight and a half over at minus one fifteen look good. But uh, we'll see. They're they're probably going to trip up one more time, which puts them at eight and two going into those final two games, and they're going to have to win. Then they're going to have to win one of them. So and that's like we said, it's going to be out of Wisconsin team. That's uh that's going to be pretty uh pretty jacked up, and then finally Nebraska and Nebraska, you can guarantee Pelini's going to be coaching for his job that week. So
1: probably, and we'll, we'll get see. more into that here recently or, or soon. We'll talk about coaches on the hot seat and everything like that. But Bo Pelini is. I was surprised he got back last year. I really thought after all that stuff that happened, where you know he sort of mouthed off and dropped in you know an f bomb talking about the Nebraska fan base <laughs> and saying like I don't I don't care about them. I'm worried about my team. Yeah, and Nebraska is basically. They're one of the college programs that their fans are true diehards. Like right. They live and breathe Nebraska football. There's nothing else and to And so do. for Bo Pelini to kind of be going through the motions and pretty much winning 9-4 you know, and nine basically every season, he, he needs to somehow find a way to win that division this year, and we don't like Nebraska to do it. We think Wisconsin or Iowa, one of those two, are probably going to emerge from the West. But the West is a lot easier than the East because
0: the East has some – yeah, really top tier programs. Exactly, and so let's move on to uh, Oregon. Now, Oregon's a team that everyone loves, and you know, I don't dislike them as well. I mean, they look like a team that's a, a top five caliber team. They've got the talent. They've got Mariota coming back, who's probably the best uh, quarterback in the nation. Uh, Jameis Winston probably will have something to say about that. But um, they're set at ten and a half wins. Is their over under? Um, and really looking at their schedule. Eleven wins seems tough. They 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 couldn't do it last year in conference. All right, before the bowl game, and uh, I don't know where uh, where these eleven come from specifically this year, especially if they get tripped up by a Stanford or uh, or an Arizona State something like that. So that's that's what's interesting. Michigan
1: State week two. <laughs> Michigan, Michigan State, State won the Rose Bowl is, last year,
0: and that's that's really that's that game kind of sets out the layout for uh, both of these teams going out because. If if uh, Michigan State loses this game, they're a little bit deflated going into their Big Ten schedule. But if if Oregon loses this, then they could be looking at a nine and three, eight and four season. I really think that you know this could really could really break their already fragile confidence because you know they've lost some some pretty surprising games the last couple of years. So uh, Oregon at ten and a half wins. Just looking at their schedule, you got South Dakota win, Michigan State a toss-up uh it's at it's at oregon so that helps uh, yeah
1: yeah they'll be favored and michigan state although they'll be good this year i don't think they're quite as good as they were last year as they lost some real studs on the defensive side but offensively michigan state should be better than they were last year for sure and they still and have
0: narduzzi who's the best part of their defense so. and then on
1: top of it we've seen oregon struggle against those type of teams which are power teams that yeah. really play physical football and Michigan State is basically Stanford of the Midwest right now in terms of the way they run. So that's not going to be a gimme, but I think Oregon, Oregon's expected to win that one.
0: Then you have Wyoming, Washington State, Arizona. That's three wins. Then they go to UCLA. Well, I mean, um, you can't necessarily say Arizona's a guaranteed win. I mean, they lost by almost 30 points last year at Arizona. That seems like a, a retribution game to me, where they come and they just lay the hammer down on those guys. Plus, it's at home. It's on a Thursday night at Autzen. I think that's going to be a tough game for Arizona to win. But you're right. They did uh, they laid an A last year, uh, but I really think that they're going to be coming into that game 4-0 off of a bye on a Thursday night, and they're just going to run train on those guys. But then they go down to UCLA the week after, and that's where... Um, that's where UCLA... UCLA will already have played Texas. They've already had a couple tough games uh, going into it. And if they're undefeated, this game is is huge. They're going to already have played Texas. They're going to have played at Arizona State. And then they come and they get Oregon at home. Gosh, that that's, that's probably a top three game in the Pac-12 this year if both of those teams coming undefeated.
1: Well, if they're both undefeated, they're both preseason top ten as it is now. If they play that game, they're going to be both in the top five at that point. Yeah, for sure. And you're looking at maybe number one or two in the country against number four or five in the country. That's as big a game UCLA's had in a long time. Oregon's had a couple of those games over the years, but they've struggled in those type of games. And then, of course, the bigger question, David, is... What type of coach is Mark Helfrich? Is he a top call? Is he a top caliber coach that's capable of winning a national championship, or is he going to be the type of coach that's always putting his team with nine or ten wins, but not necessarily making that leap? Because Chip Kelly got them to the national championship game. They lost, right. but they were there. Mike Belotti took them from a decent program to a very good program. Yeah, and now it's Mark Helfrich and. The fact that they got blown out against Arizona last year or against Stanford, they were really, for the most part, blown out. I know they made yeah, they it made close it late, but they were down big in that game and they got hit exactly the way that Stanford wanted to beat them, which was just power the football, dominate them, get after the quarterback, and also Marcus Mariota. He is one of the best quarterbacks in the country, but he's had injuries the last couple of years. Not Nothing to, to the extent that it has really diminished his pro value, but if you look at him as a college quarterback, who's behind him? If he gets hurt... That's not a team that's winning 11 or 12 games. No,
0: definitely not. But now, going back to UCLA, they match up well against the UCLA team. And they should. This is a game that on paper they should win, and they'll probably come in, if not slight favorites, very slight underdogs if it's not a pick So that's a game where you can call it a toss-up. But then moving on, they then take Washington. Cal's a, a throwaway game. Then you go right... Uh, and they get Stanford at home, which is another one where they know exactly what Stanford's going to do to them. They're going to come in and they're going to punch him in the mouth. And for the last two years, it's worked for Stanford. So that's going to be really interesting for them. And then you go down Utah, Colorado, Oregon State. Oregon State's always a tough game. You think they're going to pull it out. But it looks like UCLA, Stanford, and Michigan State, you know. You lose one of those games, it really puts you on the uh, precipice well, for the other two. I wouldn't discount Washington. I have Washington a lot higher than most teams. I actually have
1: them in my preseason Rankings ahead of UCLA. I have Washington 11. I have UCLA 12. I think Chris Peterson's going to do a great job there. They have a lot of talent. They probably have the best defensive line in the Pac 12. They have some really high caliber athletes on offense. I think Cason Williams has a chance to be the, you know, probably the second best receiver in the conference behind Nelson Aguilar, although Jalen Strong is pretty good at Arizona State as well. Yeah. But Washington, I know they lost Bishop Sankey. Uh, Siler Miles is suspended for Just that for first game, game yeah. but it's not really going to kill them. Uh, I think Washington's the type of team that could be a sneaky 10-11 win team if things go the right way. I'd say 10-2. and two. I feel like 10-2 for Washington is kind of where I think they'll go. But I also love Chris Peterson. I think, I think he's one of the most undervalued coaches in the country. I know the last year or two at Boise, they weren't anything special, but look what they did before that. I mean, yeah. Chris Peterson, when he plays big-time programs, he generally wins. And I just think if you have that matchup between Washington and Oregon and you have Mark Helfrich against Chris Peterson, I expect that to be a much closer game than what you saw the last couple years with somebody like Sarkeesian, who I think he's okay, but he <laughs> was 7-win Sark for a reason. Yeah, He wasn't necessarily winning 10, 11, 12 games at any point.
0: Well, it looks like uh, Vegas agrees you they have... Um... They have Washington's over under total set at nine games, so they think that uh, Peterson's going to come out of the gates pretty hot. But uh, so just to just so that you are all uh, following us, we think Oregon State, or excuse me, Oregon at ten and a half, take the under. It's at plus one forty five. They don't want you to take it, so uh, they're trying to give you money to take it. So I would uh, I jump on that along with Wisconsin over at nine and a half, and Iowa at eight and uh, a half. It's kind of uh, it's a little bit on the precipice, but let's blow through all these last couple since we already talked about Texas a little bit and Charlie Strong. Uh, Uh, which we're we're pretty high on. But Texas at 7.5 wins, and you're getting money at minus 105. It's basically even. Uh, I like that. I like that a lot, actually.
1: Yeah, I think Texas wins 9. I would say the outside chance at 10 if maybe they upset UCLA or they upset Oklahoma, which they beat Oklahoma last year. And UCLA, although very good, certainly hasn't proven to be that caliber of program that wins the biggest games on its schedule. But, yeah, I think Texas pretty safely wins at least eight. And seven and a half is a bargain. You get them at minus 105. And for those people that maybe don't know everything about betting, minus 105 just means you have to throw in an extra 5% on any bet you make. And so I think Texas, they might win eight, probably wins nine. Well, yeah, And you safely get that.
0: I think eight is a, is a pretty safe uh, is a pretty safe uh, area for them.
1: And if they happen to win a couple games early, they play BYU at home in the first month. They get UCLA in the state of Texas in Arlington at AT and T Stadium, Jerry World. So if they can happen, if they happen to win those games. Then they're looking at a really special season, and and 7.5 would be a shoe in But, of course, they could trip up both of those. We saw Taysom Hill sort of (laughs) dominate Texas last year. So there's no guarantee that Texas is going to sort of transition easily and be a 5-1 and type of team. But I feel pretty safe saying that they'll probably win 8, maybe even 9 games, and outside chance at 10 if things go well. I do agree with Charlie Strong where he said we're not a national championship program right now. And I agree with that. They're not
0: winning 12 or 13 games.
1: But in general, 7.5, that's that's a pretty good bet.
0: Yeah, he kind of took the uh, the Jurgen Klinsmann uh, uh, model of saying, you know, we're not there yet, but we're, we're going in the right direction. And I think he's right. No one's looking for uh, Texas to end up in that college football playoff. But, you know, they, they have an outside chance to, uh, to win the Big 12. Um, we already know what they can do against Oklahoma, and it'll be interesting to see uh, that Baylor game. That's going to be another huge game.